the military and the just war. The Bible speaks on the subject of military and war and its relevance to man in general and to a nation's citizenry. I cannot speak to every issue, but here is a brief overview of the subject. Wars, we are taught in Scripture, are to be fought in defending justice and, of course, the suppression of evil. Wars are to be in accordance with the law of God. And the Bible speaks of a religious type of sanctification that the military ought to be involved prior to engagements. That is, seeking to honor God as they go forth to engage the enemy. Joshua 3.5 The earliest age for a man to serve in the military, according to the Bible, is 20 years old. These were to be able-bodied men. Numbers 1, 2 through 3 states. Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel, by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their armies. And in Numbers 26, 2, you have the same principle. Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel, from 20 years old and above, by their father's houses, all who are able to go to war in Israel. From this principle, we can also derive that registration for military duty is biblical. But what must be rejected is an unbiblical conscription for unjust military ventures because of status desires. The Bible also speaks of the reason that some men should not serve in the military. Deuteronomy 20, verses 5-9 through 9 says, Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man marry her. The officer shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be, when the officers have finished speaking to the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. Here, the following principles are clearly set forth. First, an individual who has just built a new house, which is from the fruit of his labors, was to be exempt at that specific time for service. Second, the farmer who had planted his field was to stay out of the battle so that he could also bring forth his harvest and thus at that time was specifically exempt from service. Third, those who were engaged to be married, they were to stay and to marry the young lady and therefore they too were exempt for that specific period of time. 
Fourth, those with a new wife were also to be exempted from military service for one year. Deuteronomy 24.5 makes that very clear. Fifth, those who were fearful, those who did not have the courage and the strength to go into battle were to be exempt from military service because they would have an effect upon the army. Sixth, those whose conscience was violated because the military adventure was unjust according to the law of God and not what constitutes a just warfare. They, too, had the right of recusing themselves to military service. The use of military service is for the restoration of an orderly society according to the law of God. To that end, the moral law of God's Ten Commandments must engage both the purpose and conduct of any military engagement. Engagement in military action where the law of God is not closely observed results in, one, God removing his hand of protection from our soldiers, and two, judgment against our nation. In a just war, in order to overthrow the evil in that nation, it is also lawful in battle to not only engage their army, but to suppress the evil that is among them, both during and after the war. Deuteronomy 2.34, Deuteronomy 3.6, and Joshua 11.14 give evidence to that command of God. A just war is to be defensive and in response to national violation. However, I believe that we must redetermine some aspects of this in light of our advanced technology, which creates a different question of what constitutes an act of war by a foreign nation. In a just war, God forbids the destruction of the land. Much like some of the ancient armies in history who had done those very things when they besieged a city and destroyed its farmland, destroyed their fruit-yielding trees, etc. Deuteronomy 29, 19-20 says that we are not to take our war to God's creation. The scorch-earth policy is a good example of what is forbidden by God's law. All of this leads me to my last point, of which I really wanted to particularly address. That is, in considering political issues, how do we deal with those who serve in the military? How should they be properly viewed and treated? Those who serve in the military were, according to God's law, to receive a just salary and a pension for their service. Numbers 31, 26-27 says, Count up the plunder that was taken of man and beast, you and Eleazar, the priest, and the chief fathers of the congregations, and divide the plunder into two parts, between those who took part in the war, who went out to battle, and all the congregation. In Deuteronomy 20.14 we're told, But the woman, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all of its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder which the Lord your God gives you. Now the principle is this. Those who put themselves into 
war, that is to say, those who are engaged in actual warfare, or those who commit themselves to full-time military service for the protection of our nation, ought to be treated in the following manner. One, they ought, no, they must, be paid a just wage which is equal to or greater than the national average of the working man. Today, that would be in the ballpark of about $41,500 per year. Second, this should include during their time of service and for the rest of their lives, medical and dental care, both for the veteran and his wife. Third, during service, free housing for the soldier's family and a generous stipend for their daily provisions ought to be provided. Fourth, upon retirement, a house, perhaps a three-bedroom house, ought to be given to him for his retirement, for his service. Fifth, re-college training during and after service at institutions of their choosing. Sixth, all burial costs for the husband and the wife in a military cemetery. Perhaps some other things should also be considered. But these are important in order to engage our citizens, especially our young men and women, when they go forth in harm's way, that they be properly cared for because they have putting forth their life on the line for us. I never served in the military. My father did in World War II. We owe our brave soldiers much more than we could ever really repay them. Thank you, veterans, for your service. Thank you, our soldiers, our military, for your service to our country. God bless our soldiers and protect them and their families. Let us not forget Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. In Psalm 9.17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God.